Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. Finding a good therapist hinges on the connection you have with them. If they don't understand your passions, such as punk rock, it probably isn't going to be a good fit. Creative types such as musicians and other artists often feel like they're misunderstood. They might be frustrated that they can't find the perfection they strive for, and putting their art into the world is a vulnerable act. Bobby Ballard is a clinical psychologist. She focuses on helping artists tackle hurdles such as creative block and burnout, two things she says are intertwined. Bobby challenges the hierarchy of mainstream psychoanalysis, where mental health professionals try to solve your problems, while you're left nodding your head and thinking, get me the hell out of here. It always brings to mind the comfy couch to lie on while they hand you a box of Kleenex. Bobby takes a different approach. She's struggling and she's vulnerable too. She loves being a creative person who shares her art, clenches her teeth, and hopes for the best, and that resonates with her clients. Bobby uses a punk-informed style of therapy, and there's always more room for another punk in the mental health field. My name is Bobby Ballard, and I grew up in San Pedro, California in the 70s and 80s. So it was like punk was kind of being born when I was a kid in San Pedro. It was like where the Minutemen and I guess Black Flag, maybe technically they're from Redondo Beach, but that's like San Pedro adjacent. So we claimed them. (laughs) So that was kind of my first exposure to punk in real life. I think before... Before that, when I was in middle school, I think I thought punk was just something, I don't know, something in England. (laughs) I think it was just the Sex Pistols. There's just something far away. I didn't really, it wasn't really on my radar. Black Flag and the Minutemen and that scene, that was like the hardcore scene, the South Bay. And it didn't actually resonate with me that much, but it resonated with all my guy friends. And so I kind of got in that way, and then I found stuff that I liked. So more up in like the Hollywood part of LA, where X was being born, I guess, in the late 70s, early 80s, I was like, oh, I'm into this. This resonates with me. And most of the bands that have resonated with me had at least one woman in them. So that's not a surprise. I've never been in a mosh pit or anything. I just couldn't do that. <laughs> so fast forward um, to now, I'm I'm a psychologist. I've been a psychologist for like 20 years. I work with creatives 
artists, writers, musicians around anxiety and burnout and depression or mental health issue. I really love it. I love everything I do. And my clients are awesome. (laughs) Why do you think it is that you ended up or moved towards working with creative people, musicians, artists, and their mental health struggles? Do you see a trajectory there? I mean, is it related to how you grew up in the punk scene and what you learned from there? Yeah, definitely. Growing up in the music scene and punk music and post-punk stuff and the art scene, I've always like made art. I've just never, it was only recently I started calling myself an artist because it's like, well, I don't sell it. You know, I've been in bands since, I don't know, my early 20s, but they were just like garage bands. It was kind of an accident. I When I started my practice, it was a pretty traditional setup where like I was on different insurance panels. And so people would find me through their insurance and they probably, I would imagine, like look it up on their insurance and be like, oh, her office is near my house or my office and she takes my insurance. So I'll go to her. People from random walks of life. It took me several years to kind of connect to the dots, but eventually I was like, all the clients that really stick with me were a good fit are these creative types and people who kind of identify as freaks, self-identified. I don't think they're freaks, but you know, they... (laughs) It's okay. We can all be freaks. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So it was really just several years ago that I was like, oh, those are my people. I just never realized it. But looking back, you know how... In therapy, like one of the most important things is having a really good connection with your therapist. They can be like the best trained person in the world, but if they're not for you, it's just really hard. So yeah, the people that I just developed the best relationships with were these like artists and musicians. So I just decided, oh, well, that's what I love and that's who I help, like who I serve the best. So I'm going to do that. What do you see as being the biggest or most common struggles amongst people who are creative and are trying to express themselves through their art? Yeah. A couple things. One is like, it feels like the world isn't really cut out for us a lot of the time. So they often feel misunderstood or trivialized. And the other thing is, it's just like perpetually vulnerable. If you don't have a thick skin, which I think artists are sensitive in bands, I've never sung. I'm a drummer and I'm comfortable hiding behind the drum kit. (laughs) It's just like doing my thing, right? And to me, the idea of writing lyrics and then singing them into a microphone is absolutely terrifying. So the fact that people do that, I'll have clients and they'll have all kinds of anxiety, but they will stand up on a stage and scream into a microphone. I'm just like, you are a brave person. (laughs) You think of people who have performance anxiety behind the stage and there's all these people out there and they're the biggest artists in the world and they're freaking out and having to barf in a bucket or whatever the case may be. But I think with punk rock, because it is so open and there's no judgment around what the person is doing on stage or what they're singing or how they're singing it or whether they're carrying a tune or not in some cases. I know for me, I don't have the performance anxiety at all because when I go out there, I'm just like, I don't know what I'm doing but I'm just screaming a head off and I'm playing guitar and I'm hitting all the wrong notes maybe. And there's no pressure. You know, I think I see such a narrow slice of the pie of punk musicians because I'm seeing the ones that do get really nervous before they go on stage. I think it's awesome that you you don't, 
But even if they're thrashing around, they do have all these fears and anxieties. And it's like, those are the ones that self-select to come see me for anxiety, right? So I have this skewed perception that when you were talking about how, you know, you don't get anxiety because you can just go there. I was just like, oh my God, that's awesome. I need to (laughs) remember that there are people like that. Yeah. Maybe that's part of your work with them is coming to realization that there's anxiety there and it's really scary, but what are the repercussions? What's the worst case scenario? Yeah. Someone's going to say, oh, you didn't hit the right note when really they're just hearing the volume and the fury of it. Right. Yeah. I listened to... um, the episode about performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was so validating. Jason Shevchuk from No yeah. More Black and some other bands. Yeah. So Jason was saying how, like, the performance anxiety is the worst right before. And then you get out there and then you're okay. When I actually take the stage after that first song, fine. It's like washes away. The adrenaline just kind of overflows and just wipes everything away. I did my um, dissertation research on performance anxiety in rock bands. And that was exactly what the data found too. It's like the anxiety peaks right before you go on stage. So if you can just remember, like, it doesn't get any worse than this. And when I get out there, it's going to be great. You talk to folks about creative block and burnout around their art. Yeah. Burnout is like, basically when, when someone's in a situation that's not sustainable, And so you can kind of go along for a while spending more energy than you bring in because we have reserves. And then when you hit the reserves, you just get burnt out and things that used to be easy aren't easy. Not everyone who is blocked creatively is burnt out, but most people who are burnt out get blocked, if that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Creative block kind of depends on the situation and the person. Yeah. So anyway... Sorry, I have ADHD, so I totally go off on tangents. <laughs> Me too. What was I well, talking about? <laughs> we're on the same team. <laughs> I don't usually tell my clients that I have ADHD until I do something like forget their session or something. <laughs> yeah. Full disclosure, I have ADHD just like you do, because a lot of my clients have ADHD. So totally forget. Sorry. A lot of work that you've done, the impetus has been your own struggles with mental health and anxiety and ADHD and looking at that. So I would imagine that would be a very validating process of looking into the the data and writing the dissertation around some issues that you have yourself. Yeah, yeah. At the time, my then husband and I were in a band and graduate school at the same time. I'd had a panic attack before we played. And so I played like shit because I was like kind of shaky and weak. And meantime, one of our favorite things to do, this was like before I had kids, so my life was my life was my own, is we would just go see shows all the time. And these were like small shows where there's not a backstage, you're kind of seeing the bands, you know, they don't have roadies, they're like setting up their own equipment and stuff. So I was always watching with interest because I could see them like triple and quadruple check their equipment and do all this stuff. And I'm just like, oh my God, they're anxious. I can totally tell they're so nervous, even though it's this band I love and I think they're amazing. I might even worship them a little bit, but I can tell that they're super anxious. Watching that and then having my own anxiety is how I like kind of cooked up the idea to 
research it. I looked into the literature and there's there's a lot of research on um, classical music performance anxiety, but there just like was almost nothing. I think one person had done a dissertation somewhere on it and that was it. So yeah, it was definitely my own experiences, my personal experiences, my experiences watching musicians. So a panic attack before you went on and played, yeah. was that a regular thing for you? It sounds like you played a number of shows. No, it wasn't. But one of the things about performance anxiety is it's mitigated a lot by what the stakes are, like what's at stake. So if I was just playing like at a college for free, like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just like, I don't care. I went to graduate school in Ohio. So this was in Cleveland at this club. I have no idea if it's still there, but it's called the Euclid Tavern. And where I saw a lot of my favorite bands and we were like the first of two opening acts. So we weren't any big deal or anything. The headlining band hadn't even heard of us, but to be on that stage felt like super huge to me. Also, <laughs> there was this 80s movie starring Joan Jett and Michael J. Fox. Oh yeah, Light of Day. Yes. Euclid Tavern was the club that ah, appeared okay. in that. So in my head, it's this like famous, magnificent place, even though there were probably 10 people there when we played because it was like early in the evening. But yeah, in my mind, the stakes were really high. And I'm sure that's why it happened. There was just all this imposter syndrome of like, I don't belong here. We were just this um, noisy little weird band. We didn't even have a guitar or a bass. We had <laughs> we had an electric baritone ukulele that was played through like distortion and stuff. So it sounded really weird. And then we had like a Moog keyboard with all the sliders and stuff and the drums. So we were really like lots of treble, not a lot of bass and just really like noisy and kind of irritating. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> was, sounds great. It's kind of what got me through grad school, honestly. <laughs> You have played in some bands, I would imagine. There's like, what, two or three bands you played in over the years? or Yeah, three or four. And I know that you mentioned having a very busy life, obviously, with family and, and your work, yeah. mental health. Have you thought about being in a band again, or at least maybe jamming with some friends in the basement? I have, yeah. Once in a while, I'll get on Craigslist, and I'll see if anyone's looking for a drummer who has sensibilities like mine. And a few years ago... I was living in Atlanta at the time. There was like a Craigslist ad and he he was like, oh, my influence was like Guided by Voices and Dinosaur Jr. And I was like, oh my God, I love those bands. So I actually went and I met him at his practice space, but I was so rusty on the drums that I just like sucked. And I was like, my drums are in storage in Portland, Oregon, because I just moved here and I haven't played the drums in years. And it sounds like I totally suck. I'm just going to go now. And he was like, well, call me, like, get your drum shift here. I'm like, okay. And I like totally avoided him and never called him back. <laughs> awkward. Was, it was so awkward. It was so cringy because I just basically sat down after maybe like five years of not playing and like played for him. And it was like, you must think that I'm a liar and I don't know how to play the drums. And then also my like unhealthy superpower is avoidance. So, yeah, so I just, like, locked it up. I just never talked to him again. Um, I haven't really looked into it again. My drums are still in storage in Portland. (laughs) What do you miss about it? I mean, I miss 
playing them. I miss having a band. I miss practicing. I miss that flow in the middle of a song when it's just like, oh yeah, I'm alive. This is good. And I get that in other ways. I've been doing mainly visual art for a long time. And I definitely get that when I'm drawing or painting, but it's not as physical, the physicality of making music and all those things you mentioned are are amazing, and I feel the same way. Those are the things that I get from being in bands. Yeah. For the folks that come in and are having some real struggles around their creativity and their creative pursuits, what is usually the things that are blocking them or are really hindering them from fully enjoying their creative pursuits? Yeah. It's almost always some kind of mindset issue of imposter syndrome, just feeling really insecure. And so it gunks up the works, right? Like it kind of freezes up the creativity if you're feeling really insecure and anxious. A lot of negative thoughts. Who am I? I can't do this. Not as good as so-and-so, so what's the point? Shifting that mindset can be really helpful. Baby steps can't be discounted for how they add up. How do you handle folks that are dealing with mood episodes and mood conditions such as bipolar, such as general depression, where those thoughts are coming up tied to the moods and sometimes feel like impossible to fight or uncontrollable. And then may, in the case of bipolar, which is what I live with, can completely flip. And then all of a sudden I'm the world's greatest guitar player and I want to book the biggest shows. And how do you deal with that part of it? Yeah. I really try to make sure that people aren't isolated that they have like support because one session a week with me is does not a support system make so having people who accept them and that they can talk to about stuff and also the people can keep an eye on them so having someone who can be like hey you seem really like hey i noticed you didn't sleep last night what's going on having support is good With bipolar and often with depression, but certainly with bipolar, there's like always a conversation about medication. Almost always, I hesitate to say always, but almost always being on some kind of medication for bipolar. I know some people think it's absolutely 100% necessary and I'm almost there except that I've seen enough people do okay if their bipolar is mild enough that they cannot medicate. But for most of the time, they're finding the right medication regime is important just like you said it just like comes up and it feels like you can't fight it i'm very much into loving all parts of ourselves so even if someone might say like god i hate this part of me that goes to that dark place i wish i could just get rid of it and to me it's like i love that part of you that's going to that dark place and i think it needs more love and i think We need to nurture it and take care of it. And that's going to help guide it out of the dark place and instead of hating parts of ourselves. And a lot of that creativity and inspiration, the material, the artistic material can come from those dark places sometimes. I mean, some of the biggest punk songs of all time are coming from a, not a negative, but you're looking at fighting something or struggling through something or overcoming something. So in my mind, sometimes I feel like my depression, and of course now it's more stable, it's a controlled depression, it's not extreme suicidal depression like it used to be, can foster those creative thoughts. And then with the manic episodes, which again for me are fairly stable relatively, 
that can be the energy and the drive. And the, so the two things to me kind of go hand in hand. And yes, yeah. embracing and accepting both of those things and not begrudging them as much as I would have before I wanted to fix and to cure and to get rid of and to, yeah. and now it's more like, okay, well, how can I use this to my advantage? Right. Yeah, definitely. And you're right that with a cyclical mood disorder, it's like you ride the waves and you take advantage of what you get at each part of the wave. And I do wonder about the folks who are living with unipolar depression and are below that stable zone all yeah. the time, or at least, you know, most of the time in their lives. And how do they pull out of that to be creative? And that's a tough one. It is tough. Yeah, clients have told me, like, I have ideas, but I don't have the energy to execute them. Or half-jokingly say, well, I wish I had a manic episode, because then I'd have the energy to do this stuff. One of the phrases I use a lot with clients who are depressed is figuring out like daily minimums, being okay that they shift. So someone's daily minimum one day, it might be enough just to like take a shower. That's actually pretty huge if you're depressed. That might be a big ask. But their daily minimum another day might be, I can play guitar for 10 minutes or, yeah, and it doesn't have to be good. We talk a lot about punk-informed therapy on the podcast, also in the Scream Therapy book. There's some sections on that. And a lot of therapy is constricting and is traditional and is quote-unquote mainstream, whatever that yeah. means. And a lot of the therapists I've talked to have been really interested in finding different ways of providing therapy for people. And I'm wondering if you consider your practice to be punk informed? Oh, yeah, definitely I do. Well, I mean, the roots of therapy come from very patriarchal, strict ideas of like what normal is. And so therapy is to like return you to normal, but normal according to like a white male perspective 100 years ago or more. <laughs> Part of what I consider punk informed is like showing up as myself, because the traditional therapist training is be authentic, like don't be someone else, but like don't share anything about yourself, have these boundaries, be kind of a blank slate. There's definitely a place for boundaries have, and I have boundaries with my clients, but that idea of remaining a mystery so that they can project all their stuff on you, I think that's old school. And to me, showing up as myself, I find helps my clients more than thinking that they're going to see someone who usually what people default to if they're seeing any kind of healthcare provider is you you imbue them with certain powerful qualities. I mean, I know even from being a therapy client, it's like, well, I'm a therapist myself, but when I go to a therapist, I find myself thinking like, oh, she'll have the answers. She can help me. And she's just another like fool figuring it out like the rest of us. So I kind of want to show up like I'm just a fool with a lot of training. The right way to be is whatever is trying to get out of what's inside of you. And I mean, the last thing that you want to do when you're feeling like you don't belong is to find that same feeling in your therapy. Exactly. Yeah. And I've had clients tell me that they've had therapists where they felt really misunderstood. The therapist treatment goal was like, well, let's thicken up your skin so your feelings aren't hurt all the time. It's cool when people can scope out their therapist's online. A couple of the people I've talked to, they had histories of punk rock and 
they even posted that on their website and that brings in a certain kind of a client. And I always thought it was cool that you go online and I mean, this sounds silly, but you know, you're looking on there and you're thinking, oh, well, that person might be a punk. Like you said, you don't want to go into a relationship with a therapist where it's a power dynamic or there's a hierarchy. And I think with punk rockers, there's that feeling that we've got to fight. So to find someone like you or some other folks I've talked to can be very validating for people that are weirdos and freaks, like you said before. (laughs) Yeah. Term of endearment. You want your therapist to be down in the trenches with you, not trying to like teach you how to conform or something. That was my conversation with creative artist psychologist Bobby Ballard, ballard-phd.com. For more episodes of Screen Therapy, go to screentherapyhq.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Big news, the Screen Therapy book is available now. Screen Therapy, a punk journey through mental health, tells my story and the stories of others who use punk as a catalyst for mental health. Like this podcast, it links the community-minded punk scene with the mental wellness of the punks who belong to it. To order the book, go to ScreenTherapyHQ.com. For merch, check out the newly opened store at ScreenTherapyHQ.com store. And for even more designs, check out Scream Therapy on TeePublic. Okay, enough promoting. It's time for some thanking. Thank you for listening to Scream Therapy. Doing this podcast and talking to folks about punk rock and mental health has been a crucial part of my own mental stability, and it means so much to me that you're out there listening. Screen Therapy is created in the Cathet region of coastal British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klahoman Nation. Contact me at ScreenTherapyHQ.com or email me at ScreenTherapyPodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about punk rock and mental health. Until next time, take care and be well. Yeah.